Happy Easter, everybody. So good to see you this morning. Won't you look at your neighbor and say, it's awful good to see you this morning. You look beautiful. I love your dress. Amen. I get kind of excited about Easter. I, I get, you know, during the week, I'm just thinking about the cross and thinking about Jesus being raised from the dead and listening to songs around that. And uh, I like to read what, uh, I like to read stuff like from the early people. I like to read like what the people in the year 100 were singing about and, and, and talking about during that time and thinking about Jesus even on, on Saturday after he had died. They called it the harrowing of hell, that he was going down into the dead to bring people back to life that were deep in there. And that just, I don't know, I get stirred up, I get fired up, I get a little messed up. So if I get fired up this morning, you guys just go ahead and get fired up with me and feel free to, uh, to amen me at any, any time because this is a day of celebration. It's the most important day in human history that we celebrate that Jesus Christ is not dead, but he is risen. He is alive forevermore. Amen. amen. So this morning, I'm going to read Luke uh, 24. And uh, believe it or not, I'm going to preach on the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, he is risen. Luke 24, verse 1 through 12, it says, Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this that, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. And then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven disciples and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene. Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told all these things to the apostles. And their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, and stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. Let's pray together. Father, we believe in the power of your word and we believe in the power of your crucifixion and resurrection. And Holy Spirit, we just ask you to come this morning to bring life to these words, to anoint this message, God, and give us a heart to receive and an ear to hear so that you can do the full work in all of our lives and all of our hearts that needs to be done this morning. We ask it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. So we celebrate today the single most important day in human history, which is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We believe that he was crucified for our sins. And on the third day, this man came up from the grave and he literally laid death in his grave. He put death in death's grave and he overcame death. And by overcoming death, what he does is he opens the gates to us for everlasting life. And Jesus suffered a death by which death itself was conquered and ultimately destroyed. Now what we have to understand is that when we talk about the crucifixion like we did last week, the crucifixion was not a defeat that needed to be overturned in resurrection. The crucifixion was a victory that was confirmed by the resurrection. 
on the cross of Jesus Christ, he defeated all of the powers of darkness. He defeated every sin. He defeated all principalities and powers. And ultimately, he was raised from the dead, which confirmed the fact that the victory he won on Calvary was real and that he was who he said he was and that God had confirmed it by literally physically raising his body from the dead. And so there's, I was looking at something this week I wanted to share it with you. Sometimes I like to look at, like I said, what church fathers did in the year 100, 200. But if you look throughout church histories, they liked art to depict what was actually going on spiritually. And this is called, this is an icon. I've got a couple of icons that, that he can share with you. And this is called the Anastasis, which is the Greek word for resurrection. And they drew this because in this very image, you saw the resurrection of Jesus, and there's so much that's going on here that they wanted to teach to you. There's theology behind what is going on in this. And you see that he's risen from the dead, and at the resurrection, what you see is under his feet is actually the symbol of the cross. And the symbol of the cross was actually the death by which the gates of death were opened so that Jesus could enter in as they believed to harrow the gates of hell. They would sing this song, Christ is risen from the dead, trampling over death by death, and to those in the tombs he bestows life. So literally they believed that the, that the gates of hell had been opened, that when he told the man on the cross beside him, today you will be with me in paradise, that he was saying you will be with me in the lower parts of the earth that is split by a chasm and you're going to go down there with me and you're going to hear me preach the gospel to those who have died before us and I'm going to declare that to the righteous dead and I will bring them up out of the grave with me and they shall return to heaven to the Father with me as well. And then they will wait. They will wait just as the rest of the dead will for the final resurrection in which bodily they will be regenerated and be given new life eternally. But what you see under this, I love it because you see a, a man chained up because it says that he preached to the spirits that were imprisoned, that they were chained up, that they were shackled up, that there was no hope of eternal life in this place. And he preaches there. And what you see, the little markers, you can even go to the next one too if you like because it's the same thing, it's just a different version, but they would... They would make these, these pieces of art throughout history. And in the bottom, what you see are broken shackles, broken chains, and there's keys laying all over the place. Now, why would there be keys laying all over the place? If you remember in Revelation, Jesus said, Revelation 1.17, he said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And a amen. I like how he says amen because basically sometimes a preacher gets excited and he's so excited that he's got to amen himself. Amen. And Jesus is like, boys, let me tell you something. I was, I was alive. I was dead. And I'm, behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. Amen, that's a good word, brother. And then he says, and then he says, and behold, I have the keys to both death and Hades. Now, when somebody has the keys, it means they have the authority. Death and hell no longer even have the keys to their own place. Somebody amen me this morning, right? See, death and hell no longer have the keys. The man who has the keys has the authority. Sheb sinners, there's doors I can't even get into over here in this place. Sheb sinners has all the keys. He has all the authority. Jesus Christ now has the keys of both death and hell. He's been given all authority over the things that bring us the most fear in the life and in the world that we live in. 
So Jesus is, is never depicted, I love this, he's never depicted as rising from the dead by himself because it wasn't just a personal victory for him. It wasn't an individual victory. Matter of fact, Matthew says that there were others that were, that were raised from the dead on that day and they saw them walking about Jerusalem and moving about Jerusalem because it's not just his victory. He is the, the substitution for humanity. A, a big theological term is he's the recapitulation for humanity. Basically, He does what humanity should have done in their place, except he does it right, but he enters into death on our behalf and blows up death from the inside so that death loses its grip on us, and now we can enter into the life that he lived for us. And what you see back in that slide here is, uh, go back to the first one, I like it. Both of them are the same, but on each side, you have Adam and you have Eve, both of them in their tombs. Adam, his, his Hebrew name means human. And Eve's Hebrew name means life. He's taken all of human life by the arm. And I like if you look at the picture because on both of them, Adam doesn't even grab his hand. It's not Adam holding on to Jesus. It's Jesus grabbing him by his wrist because he doesn't have the power to pull himself out. He is the second Adam who undoes what Adam did in order to defeat death, hell, and the grave, and sin, and promise you the hope of eternal life, to say that death was never a part of my design, but I told you in the beginning, Adam, that the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And sure enough, within a thousand years, death hit Adam, and it hit all of the human race, and God is saying, let me tell you something. You know why death hurts so bad? You know why you weep over loved ones? You know why when I went to Lazarus's tomb, I wept? Because humans were not designed to face death. We are eternal creatures with eternal souls. And what I'm telling you is that the physical is not evil. The physical is simply what we house our spirits in, but I've come to bring new life even to the physical. And I've come to bring all things back to life from the dead. Now, we believe this, and I hope this morning you believe it. And if you've not, if you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, hear me out. Hear me out through this because here's what's interesting in our world today. And I know sometimes we live live in the Bible Belt. So most of the time, people will just believe in Christianity. They'll believe in Jesus. They'll believe in a bodily resurrection from the dead, and they don't struggle with it. But I don't know if you realize this or not, but in our world today, in the church, there's a big shift in mentality on what people should believe. And it's almost like, hey, let's just believe in everything and anything and not put pressure on people to believe in anything specifically. And there's actually been a lot of debate about the resurrection of Jesus. I remember a couple of years ago on Twitter, there was a, uh, a Christian influencer who said on Easter, Jesus is risen, dot, 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 at least metaphorically. See, y'all did the same thing I did. I was like, what, bro? Surely not. Because throughout history, what we've believed as Christian people is that Jesus is risen from the dead bodily physically and that means everything and when we reject that thought we reject the center of the Christian faith because it's so essential to what we believe for a very specific reason but now people will say well Jesus he was probably a historical figure he was probably a kind man in his heart he was probably a revolutionary that was sick of the Roman Empire oppressing them and he finally he just got sick of it so he led a revolt and like all revolts in you know the government just killed him and wiped him out but they loved Jesus so much that they decided to resurrect his story and create a myth 
create a fable and endue him with supernatural powers. And now we have a book about that. And it just sort of encourages people and it sort of strengthens people. And what's interesting is that sort of infects the thinking of the church to some degree. There's a woman named Serene Jones, bless her heart, from uh, Union Theological Seminary, a woman who's supposed to be leading students in the study of Scripture. And she made this statement recently when they asked her if she believed in a physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. And her answer was this. She said, when you look in the Gospels, the stories are all over the place. They're scattered. There's no resurrection story in Mark, just an empty tomb, which is not true. But those who claim to know whether or not it has happened, they're kidding themselves. But she says this, but the empty tomb symbolizes that ultimate love in our life cannot be crucified and killed. Now, here's the problem with this. This thinking is beginning to infect the church, and it's almost like this. We want you to come to church, and we want you to be a Christian, but really, it's not important what you believe. If you don't believe in a bodily, physical resurrection, you know, that's okay, because what's important is that love ultimately cannot be killed, and the meaning of life is just to simply love and be present and be a good person, and in the end, that's what really matters. If you have a hard time uh, moving past the scientific fact that the dead don't rise or whatever, that's still okay. But see, when we take away from these things, what we basically do is reduce Scripture and what the Bible says to just sentimental poetry. It's just stuff that we read to feel better about things, but ultimately we're not sure if we can believe that it's true. But throughout Christian history, we have believed that this is one of the most important things that we can possibly believe for good reason. The Apostle Paul dealt with many who denied the resurrection. And in the context of people denying the resurrection, here's what he said in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 12. He said, now if, if Christ has preached that he's been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if, in fact, the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also, those who have fallen asleep, the people that have died before you, they've perished. They're just no more. Then he makes this statement. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most to be pitied. And why is he saying that? Because he's saying, look, boys, we believe Christ is risen from the dead. And do you know what we're, we're suffering because of this? Our families are being tortured. They're losing their money. They're losing their jobs. And many of them are being killed simply because we profess that this man died on the cross for the sins of the world and was raised from the dead on the third day. I've been beaten in my back a million times. And if, I, if only in this life I have hope in Christ, I'm of all men to be pitied because I am suffering right now for the sake of the gospel. What he's saying is, I'm not living for this world. The time that I have left in this world, here's what the resurrection has done for Paul. He he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because of what Jesus has done, I'm better off dead. 
Because for me, death is an entrance into a new and eternal life in which one day I will experience a resurrected body that will never die again. And so he says, you know what? It's worth me taking a beating. It's worth, worth me being ridiculed and mocked and shamed because Jesus has already went the pathway before me and he has opened the gates of heaven and therefore death cannot touch me. You cannot threaten me with death any longer because I know the one that went into it, defeated it, he came back out, out of it. This is what he's saying. And so he's saying, listen, the writers of the New Testament, they don't think that a resurrection is unimportant side note or possibly metaphorical. They think that if the resurrection is not real, you are wasting your time. Let me encourage you in this this morning, okay? If you don't believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and you don't believe that he was physically, literally, bodily resurrected, you're wasting your time with Christianity, and ain't many people preaching that this Sunday. I promise you. <laughs> Go check out other sermons after this. You're wasting your time with it. He's inviting you into something where you realize that this world's not the only one. That we're living for something beyond the grave. Because Jesus has come to deal with the primary problem that human beings face, which is sin and death. Sin and death. He ends up saying, 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 26 then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. I love that. The writers of the New Testament never sentimentalized death. They never said, oh, it's just from God, and God sometimes causes death. And No, the Bible depicts death as both an enemy of God and humanity. Death is not something God uses. Death is an enemy to God. That's why when Jesus shows up on the scene, he walks in rooms with dead people and says, Arise, come up out of that filthy stuff. That's not my design. Now, he didn't raise everybody on that day because we are still under the effects of sin. We're still under the effects of the first Adam. But he's inviting us to believe so that we can begin the process of coming out of the effects of Adam. And we can step into the new Adam and become a new creation in Christ in which through our lives, people bear witness to the fact that his life is so different, it makes me believe that maybe Jesus did rise from the dead. Something happens in that. There's some power that is released in what he has done. Death is an enemy of God. Death is an enemy of humanity. And I'll be honest with you, it gives me a lot of hope and it comforts my heart to know that God isn't just sitting up there looking at death flippantly. Matter of fact, when Jesus' friend Lazarus died, what did he do? He wept. He wept the same way you and I do. He doesn't look at death any differently. He knows that it is his enemy that one day he will fully, fully defeat and the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. So let me give you three, three quick points and let's do a careful examinations of why we insist as Christians that he is risen from the dead. Number one, it reveals God's provision for our problem. Notice what the angels said uh, to Jesus. Notice what they said. They said, then as they were afraid... And bowed their faces to the earth. They said to them, 
Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but he's risen. Notice this. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. The angels said, Listen, you got to remember. Don't you remember? He told you he was going to have to be handed over to sinners, and he was going to have to be crucified because of your sins. Do you realize... That sin is the problem with humanity today. And we argue about what the problem is all the time. Well, you know, the problem is the politics, and we got bad politicians and this and that. You know, no, no, no. The problem with the political realm is the sin behind the politicians. Ultimately, it's the same. It's the same. Well, we, we, got, we got health issues, and, and it's the health issues, and there's, there's, there's just a problem with this, and it's health care. No, no, no. Sin is what brought about sickness and disease that ultimately resulted in death. And as hard as we fight sin, sickness, and death, we've not yet been able to defeat it, have we? It still comes for us all. We still all get sick. Sometimes some of us die earlier than others, but ultimately we will all face that. And these problems are going on in our world. Somebody said, well, no, it's just we got a mental health crisis. At the root of that is the issue of sin that has invaded the world, and Jesus came to deal with that problem. You know, even my baby understands this. If you look at the, everybody in this world right now, you'll know. If you look at your life, we got problems, don't we? I, how many, anybody in here don't have any problems? I'm going to talk to you after service. I'm going to let you preach next. Because <laughs> we live in a sinful and a broken world. Even Naomi knows this. Naomi, my little baby. I mean, she's all the boo-boos. I got boo-boo. She likes, to keep, she likes to keep a Band-Aid on just to remind you of her boo-boo. You know, even if it's healed, she still knows and understands boo-boos, that this isn't right. I'm hurting. I'm in pain. I've got boo-boos. Me, me, and, me and Andrea were reading her uh, a story a couple of different times about the crucifixion of Jesus. We had two little different little books, and it showed Jesus on the cross. And when she saw him, her face, she does something with her eyebrows. She went, oh. boo-boos, boo-boos. She saw him covered in boo-boos. And then and she looked at his hands nailed to the cross, and she went, boo-boo's hands. He got boo-boos in his hands. And what she's seeing, even at a young age, is the horror of sin placed upon a perfectly righteous and just man. You say, man, why'd the cross have to be so horrific? You watch the Passion of the Christ. He's bloody. They beat him half to death. Why did it have to be so horrific? Because that's how horrific your sin is. It's how ugly it is. And in our world today, in our modern age, nobody wants to discuss sin. Look, everybody, look, Clay, everybody's doing the best that they can. Let's not talk about sin. It makes people feel bad about themselves. You should feel bad about yourself. You should feel bad about the condition that you're in. We have all offended a holy God. We live for ourselves. We've, we've worshipped ourselves. And we live in brokenness. And we live in pain. And we live in shame. And we live in guilt. And Jesus has come to deal with that issue. But see, we can't fully recognize and understand the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God. It was only when I fully realized the weight and the ugliness of my own sin when I saw the beauty and the glory of God's forgiveness, God's mercy, God's grace, and His love toward me. If you just think you're a pretty good person, that Jesus is just like, oh my gosh, I'm just obsessed with you. No. He is obsessed with you, but He knows the real you. And he knows that he had to die on a brutal, agonizing cross in order to make payment for your sins. And this is why in Romans 4.25, it says, He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. 
Jesus came to undo what Adam had done. But see, he was raised to life for our justification. So he went and died on the cross for your sins. And when he was raised to life, that means that now you can have right relationship with God because he has risen from the dead. You can now have right relationship with God that you couldn't have in your sins before. In John 19.30, Jesus is hanging on the cross, and he makes seven statements when he's hanging on the cross, but here's his last one. It says, when Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. In the Greek, it's a very specific word. It's tetelestai. I've encouraged many people to get tattoos of it. Amen. No, I'm Again, joking. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. It is finished to, to telestai in the Greek. Scholars will say, this is a condensed symbol. So when he's saying it's finished, he's not just saying, oh man, I'm glad that's over, I'm done. He's saying something that is so packed full of meaning that it allows us to see what he's done from multiple perspectives. And if you look at the Greek word to telestai, uh, throughout history it was used in many different ways. Number one, it was used by servants. And uh, there's an ancient account of a secular writer, basically where he says that he, this man sent his son to do business in a far-off country. And the son was young, but he was going on behalf of the father because the father was busy with business back home. And the son kept writing his, his, his father and saying, Dad, I'm ready to come home. I want to come home. And his father would send the message back and say, Son, you have got to finish business first. And finally, after correspondence back and forth, the son just sends one letter back and says, To tell us and all he's saying is, it's done, it's finished, I'm ready to come home. And he ends up coming home. And in the same way, Jesus, as the servant, the perfect servant of the Most High God, of his Father, came into a far-off country, one that rejected him and brutally beat him and crucified him. But he finished the work of redemption, and then he said, Tetelestai, Father, I'm coming home. I've done the work of redemption, and it is completed, it is full, it is finished. Secondly, priests would say the word to Telestai because what they would do is they would examine a lamb, and when they saw that it was without spot and without blemish, they would say to Telestai, the inspection is finished, and they could use that lamb as the sacrifice. In the same way, Jesus was both the high priest and the sacrifice. He was perfect, without spot and without blemish. I told you last week, if you were here, that John the Baptist would have been the true high priest, he passed the priesthood down to Jesus. Jesus was raised from the, uh, from the waters as high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And when he goes to the cross on Passover, they would have been offering the Passover lamb at 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. Jesus goes to the cross as both the high priest and the sacrifice. And at 9 a.m., they would have offered a sacrifice. They would have stood to 3 p.m., offered another sacrifice, and said, It is finished. Jesus hung at 9 a.m. At 3 p.m., he said, just like the priests do, it is finished as he hung out on the cross, offering the final sacrifice to end all sacrifices. There is no more sacrifice needed for your sins. You don't have to beat yourself. You don't have to pray more. You don't have to do any of those things to earn the salvation that Jesus has paid for you on the cross. The sacrifice has been paid. Thirdly, artists use the word to tell a style because they would sculpt or they would paint and they would be looking at their image and their painting and they would wait until they got perfectly done because before they put their mark or their signature on it, they wanted to know that the thing was complete. And finally, when they got done, they would look back and they would say, to tell a style, it is finished. Do you know that you are God's workmanship? The scripture says you are his poem, that his redemption, your redemption is God's art. 
I shared with uh, y'all several weeks ago something called Kintsugi art, right? And if you put that bowl up there real quick, so this, this bowl, this image, basically Kintsugi art is a Japanese art form where they take broken things that people throw in the garbage and they get them and they get all the pieces and they put it back together using costly metals like gold or silver or platinum or different things like that. So that now you see the beauty of the brokenness coming back together. And the thing that is now restored at great care, great value, and great cost is actually far more valuable after it's broken and put back together than it was before it was broken. And in the same way, you are God's artwork. He takes your brokenness. He infuses it with the metals of redemption, with gold and silver and platinum. And when you come back together, they see, you see God's beauty in his redemption. He is the artist working out the worst parts of who you are into something beautiful so that you become more valuable after the brokenness through his redemption. Somebody say amen to that. That's good. Fourthly, the merchants. Basically, if you buy a house... You know what it's like you buy a car, you know, you, you, the bank gives you a big check and you're just making payments on it until finally you make that last payment. And when you make the last payment, they send you a note that says on it to Telestai, paid in full. There are no more payments to be made. Jesus has made the full and final payment. That were in a jail cell, this word would be used in, in concurrence with them because when they would be in prison in a jail cell, there would be a, a, a debt certificate uh, basically on front of their jail cell that listed all of their crimes, but it also listed how long they would be in there and the penalty that they had to pay. Now, when they got out, the, basically the, the guy, the, the prisoner or the jailer would take it and he would write to Telestai over it and fold it up and give it to the former prisoner that has now been set free so that if anybody tries to accuse him of those crimes again, he can hand them that certificate of debt and say, no, it's been paid in full. And in the same way, when Satan comes to try to bring bondage and imprison you, you can say, no, Satan, it's been paid in full. My debt is restored. I'm no longer in chains to the prison that you have for me any longer. This is the word. And so Jesus on the cross is saying he has completely finished the mission of redemption. And this is what we need to understand because sin, we feel it every day. Matt and Megan, Megan shared a a testimony and we, we posted it last week. We watched it about going through a miscarriage, and we, we, we talk about all of the pain and the suffering that we feel. When we feel those things, what we are feeling is the law of sin and death at work. When we go through these issues where we're dealing with the, with the guilt and shame of our past, we're feeling the law of sin and death at work in us, and Jesus has come to deal with exactly that. Amen. Secondly, God reveals his power through the resurrection over our enemies. And we read that the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. The angels said to them when they came to the tomb, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here, but he is risen. And here's the thing. All of us deep down in our hearts, we wrestle with the reality of a a physical universe. And, and, And I'll say this. I feel like to a large degree, maybe you agree with me, maybe you disagree. But there's a lot of shame involved with our physical bodies and some of you just hang out here with me because you you'll know exactly what i'm talking about we understand that our bodies are frail we try to do things honestly to fend off death do we not i'm 36 years old i'm getting a little bit older i know the folks that are older than me that you just get aggravated for me saying this but believe it or not you ain't gonna believe this i'm getting flabbier and i notice that i notice that no matter what i do I cannot slow down my flabbiness increasing. 
You understand what I'm saying? Does anybody feel me this morning? It's death at work in our bodies. And honestly, we're ashamed of it. And, and, and we will do anything we can to try to fend off death to some degree. You know what I'm saying? And no matter who we are, more flabby, less flabby, we all feel the effects. I feel the effects in my knees when I try to play sports. Now, my back goes out four times a year. I slip discs regularly. I'm 36 years old. You know what I'm saying? My, my, it, it, something is going on, and we're, we recognize it. We recognize it, that death is at work, and, man, we're trying to fend stuff off. I mean, I drink collagen and orange juice sometimes just to make my joints healthier. <laughs> Amen. I mean, I don't know what to tell you. We're all doing something. I mean, we, people can be injecting Botox. They're trying to not age. Y'all amen me this morning, right? We're all doing things. Why? Because we have some shame and we have some guilt associated with the fact that we are aging and we are moving closer to death and death is at work in us and we live in a constant denial of death and we try to honestly push off the acknowledgement of death. Would you agree with that? Even in churches today, if you notice something, I go, to, I go to a lot of old churches sometimes, especially if I preach funerals, and what I'll notice is older churches back in the day, a lot of them had cemeteries very near the church. It's almost like every time you came to church, you had to recognize the fact that, hey, one day I'm going to be there most likely. Like I've already even got my plot laid out. And you had to acknowledge that in your head every time you come to church. In modern churches, all we got is coffee shops. Because we don't want to acknowledge death. We want to say, no, we're living for the now. We need to get hyped up on caffeine so we can get things done. Forget death. Put it out of your mind. We don't want to think about it. Let's inject a little bit more Botox. Let's go on. Amen. We don't want to think about death. We don't want to acknowledge it because it stinks and we want no part of it. And this is why in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, it says, Since the children have flesh and blood that is decaying and getting old, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death... He might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. And I love this because we are enslaved by our fear of death. You say, well, I don't fear death. Most of the time, let me tell you something. People come to me all the time with anxiety. They come to me all the time with fear. And we have different fears. But I would venture to say that a vast majority of the fears that we have are ultimately rooted back to the fear of death. We're afraid of sickness. We're afraid of dying. And see, here's the thing. Jesus has done something where we can be set free from the fear of death. Because otherwise, if we don't put our hope in the resurrection of Jesus, we have to find other ways to cope with the fact that one day we're going to die. There's one guy that came up with this, this thought. He's not a Christian, but I thought it was interesting. He came up with something called terror management theory, where he talks about how we cope or how we try to live forever dealing with the issue of death. Stephen Cave is his name, and he wrote a book called Immortality. And he says, basically, we try to live forever through four different ways. Here's four different ways that we try to live forever. Number one, we try to live through legacy. Basically, if I can be successful enough or do something that just touches the world, people after I die will say, wow, man, that clay guy, he was a great guy. And this is how the Romans sought immortality. They wanted to do something so magnificent that they would write about them in history books. Problem is we live in an age now where everybody's obsessed with their own life and they're writing their own history on Instagram, posting all their stuff, and I'm thinking there's no way I can compete with that. So really, I'm not living so that people will speak about me after I'm dead. I'm living for the reward that I will inherit in the life after. 
Secondly, he says, you know, if people don't try to live through legacy or something that they do, they, they try to, we try to live through our children. If we can raise up blessed children and we can, we can uh, teach them about Jesus and about the ways of God and we can have an impact on generations to come through our family. I think that's a great thing. I think we should seek that. I think that God designs things to be that way for us. But we're living in a generation where, honestly, children have a hard time honoring or respecting much of anything, much less their parents. Amen. It's going to be hard for you to raise a child in this cur current generation where there's very little discipline that is, that is going to honor you or anyone else. So, But even if they did would that be enough thirdly biology and technology and man i told you I, i've read i read some weird stuff in regards to this but people try to live forever in a lot of different ways like i said we do uh, bodily enhancement we do certain di different things there's a guy named peter teal and if you look at this guy he you can read about him and he talks about science and technology and even in 2012 he made this statement he said death is a problem that can be solved and I thought to myself, yeah, Peter, you're right. It, as a matter of fact, it already has been. <laughs> it has been. There's a man named Jesus Christ. Maybe you've heard of him. People take his name in vain all the time. He rose from the dead on the third day after he died. He took care of this. You don't have to worry about it. Put your faith in him. But here's what he says. He says by the year 2040, they'll be able to drop little robots in our bloodstream and cleanse us so that we can live well into our hundreds. I have my doubts. This guy, Peter Thiel, along with another guy, Simon Cowell, they get blood infusions from young boys, 16-year-old boys, $8,000 a liter in order to try to make them live longer and be more and, and, and be rejuvenated in their life. So they live through, they're seeking that someday we'll be able to have enough technology to live longer, possibly even forever. Now, that's not the answer. Lastly, he says there's a religious option. If you can't do it through legacy, if you can't do it through accomplishments, he says there's some people, and basically he's trying to say that this is sort of just like a fantasy world, but, but they, they, they at least believe that if they live a good enough life, they'll either get to go to heaven or they'll be reincarnated or something like that will happen, and that's how they'll live forever. And, 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 and it's kind of interesting the way that he shares it because we know that you cannot be good enough to live forever. We believe that. We don't, you're not going to be reincarnated. You cannot live good enough to get into heaven, though. The only man that lived good enough to get into heaven was Jesus Christ. And the only way you're getting there is if you follow the one who went into death on your behalf, put your faith in him for your sins, he purchased a way for you to now enter into heaven and live eternally. He ends up saying, there's a guy, Luke Ferry says this, and he wrote about thought throughout history. And he says, listen, if you study all philosophy throughout time, he says, there's actually nothing like the claims of Christianity. He says, it is the only religion where death has been defeated by love. The Christian response to mortality for believers, at least, is without question the most effective of all responses. It would seem to be the only version of salvation that enables us not only to transcend the fear of death, but to beat death. It is this new definition of love found at the heart of the new doctrine of salvation which finally turns out to be stronger than death. He surveys every philosophy, every religion, and he says Christianity has the best answer for death, but then he makes this statement, that's just too good to be true. Let me tell you, we believe that it is too good, but it's still true. We don't deserve it, but it's still true. See, I think sometimes as Christians, we don't realize what we've been given, y'all. We, we, we don't celebrate enough what we've been given. We have the greatest truth in all of human history, and it is real. It's not a lie. 
It's real because, see, death is real and you're going to face it and there's only one solution. And what sets Jesus apart from every other religion is that he's the only leader of any religion that was ever raised physically and bodily from the, from the grave. And there's actually, actually historical evidence that proves this. But if you go and you look at any other grave of any religious leader, if you go to Buddha's cremated body, it was, it was spread literally all over Sri Lanka and, and China. You can go and find the grave of Confucius. You can find the leader of Mormonism, Joseph Smith, in Illinois, where his bones are. Charles Russell was the founder of Jehovah's Witnesses. And you can go to Pittsburgh and find him in his grave. Matter of fact, the leader of Islam, which is the second biggest religion in the world, Muhammad, if you go to Medina in Saudi Arabia, you can find his remains. But if you go to Jerusalem, where Jesus' tomb is, there's nobody there anymore. And that's a big difference for every other religion. And we have to take that into account. We can't simply say, you know what, all these religions ultimately are saying the same thing. They most definitely are not. Jesus Christ is the only answer for a renewed world, a renewed body, and life eternal. Because he didn't come just so we could float as spirits in some afterlife in heaven. No, he says, I am returning. And even though those who die before us to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord in spirit, what's going to happen is he's returning and he is raising up our old dead bodies. And in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we will be raised to life and given nine-dimensional glorified bodies that will never experience sickness again, sin again, or death again. And you will never have to inject another shot of Botox, baby. Never again. Praise the Lord. I don't know if that excites you this morning or not. But see, in our society, we do tend to sentimentalize death. Oh, well, they're in a better place. If there is no resurrection, there is no better place. There is no better place. So we believe this with our whole hearts that God has done this. And like I said earlier this morning, one of the reasons I believe it more than anything is because I have experienced my own internal resurrection. I've had people come to me with the most outlandish arguments that you could ever bring against Christianity. And I'll be honest with you, I have studied it from a historical standpoint. I've studied it from a philosophical standpoint. I know all the reasoning and the arguments behind why it happened or why it didn't happen. And even when I look at it from a scientific view, I still believe that it happened. But listen, any argument that you could bring me ultimately does nothing because in my heart I experienced an internal resurrection. Jesus came to me and did something in my heart, transformed my life and raised me from the dead and gave me new life, new joy, new hope when I was in depression, bondages that I could not break, addictions that I could not break, and he came in and he shattered them. And he raised me back to life, and because of that, I know that I know that this man died on the cross for me, and he's been raised from the dead. Last point, it reveals the resurrection. It reveals what God is actually after. And this is an interesting point because some people feel conflicted about the Bible and they're like, man, I just don't get it. Like, even when, he, any, even when he's raised from the dead, he meets with people. He, why doesn't God just break in and make it more clear? Why doesn't God just break in and make it more clear? Because if you read after he's raised from the dead, what actually happens? First, when he's raised from the dead, a woman, Mary Magdalene, at that point, it, they, they would not even receive a woman's testimony in court. And if you notice what I read, it was all women who first went and preached the gospel to the disciples. He, he revealed his resurrection to Mary Magdalene uh, and all these other women who went and preached to the 11 disciples who did not believe it. And then Peter said, well, maybe it happened. Let me go check. And, and then he's perplexed and pondering it. 
Even though it had been told a hundred times, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to raise on third day, Peter. They're still struggling with it, as you and I would as well. As you and I would as well. But he comes to Mary Magdalene. She doesn't really believe it. She's at the tomb weeping with spices. And all of a sudden, she has an encounter with some angels. And Jesus says, listen, Mary, it's, it's me. I'm the man. And I've, I'm raised. Go back and tell my disciples. And then he comes, she comes back, and she talks to Peter, and she talks to some of them about it. And Peter is interesting because he comes, and he sees the grave empty and the tomb empty. And he, and he sees Jesus physically, bodily resurrected. But what's he end up doing? He just goes back to fishing. He's like, I messed up. I did some bad things. I denied Jesus. Even though he's risen from the dead, I know he's not going to forgive me over this one. But you know what Jesus does after he's raised from the dead? He cooks them some breakfast. He invites Peter in. He says, Peter, do you love me? Feed my lambs. He restores him back into ministry. He comes to Thomas, who is a doubting outfit. I mean, matter of fact, if you remember, when Jesus goes to raise Lazarus from the dead, Thomas's exact words, this is how depressed and unbelieving this guy is. His exact words are, let us go so that we may die with him also. I mean, what kind of state of mind you got to be in? Every time Jesus is about to do something amazing, Thomas has no ability to believe in it. They tell him he's risen from the dead. He said, I ain't going to believe unless I can put my hands in his wounds, in his side, and in his, in his hands. And, and, and Jesus shows up and he says, Thomas, put your fingers right here, bro. Put them right here. And he touches him and he says, my Lord and my God. He believes. Jesus is helping him believe. Jesus comes on the road to Emmaus with just two disciples. And they said, you know what? We had hope that he was the one, but he's been to, and he walks along the road with people who are literally walking away from him because they don't believe any longer. And he restores faith in their heart by just telling him what the scripture says. And why am I saying this? Because it reveals what God is really after in the resurrection. Because I, I don't know if you've thought about it this way, but here's what I'm thinking. If I'm Jesus and I'm raised from the dead, I'm not just simply meeting with a handful of disciples and trying to encourage them and love on them. I am going to Rome and I'm going down into the auditorium and I'm calling Caesar out and I say, hey, you think you're Lord? Let's have a showdown right here, baby. And I would, I would elevate and come up off of the ground and I would allow glory to emanate from me. And anybody who didn't believe, I would just go ahead and incinerate them. Poof. You know what I'm talking about? Somebody, said, yeah, somebody gave me an amen back there. Now, I'm talking about this from a completely human perspective. God is different than me. Do you know God is interested in things that are different than what humans are interested in? I would have went to Athens and I would have said, you, you guys know all this philosophy you're talking about, the divine logic, the logos? Here I am. And I would have performed sign and wonder after sign and wonder and convinced them all. But see, that's not what Jesus is about. He's about ministering to his friends when they are broken and trying to help them come into a place of faith. Because what is he doing? He's now inviting you and I into the same ministry. He's not going to explode a bomb in the sky that says, I'm alive. Believe in me. What he's saying is, I want to transform your heart so that that resurrection life can flow through you. You can come alongside people that are having a difficult time believing, and I will send my spirit to go with you, and I will walk alongside of you to convince you, to comfort you, to strengthen you in your difficult times, to give you the hope and faith that there is a bodily, physical resurrection, and that Jesus is who he says he is, and that he's died for your sins. He's paid the price. You have that hope. We have that life. Jesus is announcing that all your sin, 
all your shame is finished at the cross. Everything is finished. Everything has been paid for. And look, in these short lives that we live, I know we, we want to live a long time. We all do. I think that Jesus desires for us to live a long and a fruitful life. But ultimately, we will all face death. And the thing is, you've got you to ask yourself, how am I going to face that? The best way that we can all face it is by putting our faith in the one who has already went through it for us and overcame it. And that's where our faith has to be as believers in Christ. Once you bow your head with me this morning. I don't know where all of you are at in your walk with Jesus and, or even if you believe, but this morning is a perfect opportunity to say, I want to respond to this message. I want to believe. I want to repent of sin, and I want to walk with Jesus. And if that's you this morning and you want to take that step and you want to put your faith and your trust in, in Christ and inherit eternal life just as an act of faith, just because I want to pray with you. As an act of faith, would you let it be made known between me, you, and God right now and lift your hand and say, that's me. I want to be saved. I want to know Jesus. I want to have the hope of eternal life. Anybody in here, if that's you, would you just please raise your hand where I can see you? Anybody at all? Praise God. And for the rest of us, I want us to ask ourselves where we're at with the Lord. We come to church on Easter for a lot of different reasons. And we're glad that you're here. But take a moment to ask yourself, God, where am I with you this morning? And where do I need to be? Where are you inviting me to be? Because, Lord, not only do you want to raise me back to life when I die physically, but right now you want to bring dead things to life in my own heart. So, Lord Jesus, I pray right now that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you minister to each person in this room. And, God, you would do exactly that. You would put hope in their heart. You'd put joy in their heart. You'd put peace in their heart. But God, you would stir faith in their heart to begin to believe you once again. That following you, God, is what this life is all about. Knowing you, Jesus, is what life is. And so, Lord, I pray that you would invite every person and give them the power to surrender fully to the work that you want to do in their hearts this morning. In Jesus' precious name.